A global pandemic is upon us, and the United States has declared a national state of emergency. With us today is Dr. Prasoon Mishra. Welcome to the Personalized Diagnostics Podcast. I'm Joe Anderson. Dr. Prasoon Mishra is president and CEO of the American Association for Precision Medicine and chair of the American Association for Precision Medicine's Coronavirus Task Force. Dr. Mishra, welcome to the podcast. Uh, thank you, Dr. Anderson. Yeah, thank you for taking time out of your schedule in this very busy time amid this global pandemic, but I think we have a lot to discuss. You've put together this uh, task force, but I think let's just start right at the beginning. What is it about viruses, the structure of viruses on the surface? They're pretty simple things. DNA and RNA are wrapped up in a, in a protein capsid. But what is it about viruses, and in particular the coronavirus, that can make them so infectious and so insidious? Yeah, no, that's a very good point. Uh, understanding how a virus transmits itself is the key to containing it. Especially the coronavirus is spreading much more rapidly and has infected 10 times more folks than uh, the original SARS outbreak. Why coronavirus, novel coronavirus is so infectious is still under investigation, but there were a couple of insights that we have gained into, gained into it. So they are called coronaviruses because they are basically a circular structures like a ball with, with a spike-like structures coming out. So these are spike glycoproteins uh, uh, that are coming out and these, are, these spikes are the primary uh, contact. There is also a very um, important part. Uh, the second protein, it's kind of a membrane uh, protein uh, and, and it's uh, called hemagglutinin esterase dimer or HE dimer which is almost on the surface so if you imagine a surface of a ball on the surface there will be two dots these are the HE proteins and the spike proteins so these are two different structures I would like you to remember and inside the virus there is this RNA material that virus uses to replicate itself so in case of a coronavirus what is special is that the scientists have found that the spike protein that binds to cell membrane is actually has a furin activation site. So what is furin and why is it important? Furin is abundant on human cells and is found in uh, lots of human tissues, i.e. lung, liver, small intestine. So this makes the virus potentially, it means that virus can attach itself to multiple organs. That's one. And then furin itself is being utilized by HIV, influenza, dengue fever, fever virus, and SARS-CoV. And the way what furin does is furin basically, so viruses are inactive particles. When they enter the body, they need furin-like proteases to uh, you know, cut, and, you know, cut their protein structure and make it active. And furin is also attached to endoplasmic reticulum. So it, the activation of furin, and this is a, a hypothesis that may lead to endocytosis of the virus. So virus goes inside the cell. So that's one mechanism. And how does it differ from the SARS and influenza? SARS doesn't have the furin activation site. And influenza has a furin activation site, but it does not have it on the spike proteins, which is the protrusions, but has it on the HE, the smaller, you remember the, the second protein that I mentioned to you, HE proteins that are on the surface of the ball. So then since the spike proteins in the in the novel coronavirus have a furin binding site, this, this makes that binding site more accessible. 
So this makes the virus more infectious than the influenza virus. So that's one. And the, the second reason is that I think scientists have found that the spike protein in novel coronavirus has ACE2 receptor on the cell surface. That the NG, that's angiotensin converting enzyme 2 receptor. Novel coronavirus can bind on this ACE, ACE2 receptors on the cell surface on human cells 10, time, 10 to 20 times more uh, tightly than a spike protein in the SARS virus. So uh, that gives a leverage, more binds more tightly than that bond is, uh, you know, really uh, is, uh, becomes inseparable and then the cell basically uh, takes the virus in using endocytosis. So, so taken together, this suggests that virus evolved to develop these you know, novel mechanisms to uh, infect people uh, and, uh, at a more rapid rate than the other coronaviruses as well as influenza virus. Yeah, these viruses are insidious. In some sense, they're parasites, and then they've developed the ability to, to bind to certain receptors on human cells. That's amazing. Now, could you tell us a little bit about the American Association for Precision Medicine briefly, just so we can have some context and background? to understand this task force you've put together? The American Association of Precision Medicine was founded uh, with the goal to accelerate the field of precision medicine through uh, research, education, communication, and collaboration to foster new medical breakthroughs. Uh, so one of our goals is to facilitate a dialogue between four pieces of precision medicine, that being patients, providers, public health planners, uh, you know, i.e. government and payers. So we bring all these stakeholders together and, and encourage them to work together to achieve the goal of delivering improved outcomes. So as we are a nonprofit organization, we are kind of an underlying fabric to bring all these uh, stakeholders together. Overall, you know, uh, our team is an, um, an action-oriented team. We are, you know, headquartered in uh, Silicon Valley, uh, California. So we have access to both tech and uh, uh, medtech world we have members throughout the u.s and internationally so we not only organize meetings trainings conferences but also through these interactions we identify problem areas where we can add value and build solutions in partnerships with the stakeholders so we also conduct hackathons you know think tanks and um, identify problems in the field which uh, uh, we as a community we can solve so one of the first things we we did some survey and research and found out that the data analytics becomes one of the major is one of the major problem uh, as it, so ai machine learning is required to make sense of the uh, amount of data that we are generating so with this we created an initiative uh, we call Data AI National Summit. You know, this it, it, it turned into a conference, Data AI National Summit. But uh, we around this, we build a community, and the community we abbreviated it uh, as Dance. So the Dance community is focused on Data AI, and we had one of the first uh, meetings uh, on uh, on Google uh, campus, and Google was one of our partners. Uh, and we have uh, in that uh, you know community, we have both uh, healthcare, tech, technology companies, startups, uh, investors are part of this. Uh, community and we also have our annual meetings where we bring all the stakeholders together and that would be in sometime in November in Bay Area so this so we are yeah so we are a, a big community of uh, you know stakeholders in the precision medicine with a vision to accelerate the field of precision medicine uh, you know, by coming together and making innovation it's amazing what we can accomplish when the various stakeholders come together from various disciplines and I think Silicon Valley of course is a very rich ecosystem with a lot of resources that we can bring to bear on these serious problems. For you personally, uh, what was it that first caught your attention? I mean, obviously, we're in the midst of 
a global pandemic now, but how did coronavirus first come to your attention and what gave you the inkling that it could potentially be a serious problem? So at JP Morgan, you know, I have a lot of friends. So JP Morgan, I met with a lot of them and they were, you know, some of them were, you know, had plans to visit China. Some of them were looking forward to visiting China. Some of them were like, a, you know, and were visiting for the first time in five to seven years, um, uh, looking forward to the 2020 New Year celebrations. One of my friends, Jay Chen, who, who also visited China along with his family, and I was on um, to celebrate the Chinese New Year, and I was on call with him in mid-January. And that's when I learned about the new virus uh, that was sickening a small population in Wuhan. Some physicians thought it was uh, highly infectious. There were deaths reported in local hospitals. Uh, and I am trained uh, in you know, uh, working with RNA viruses. I started my career by studying uh, HIV reverse transcriptase and how to you know, do a structure function analysis, how to find drugs that will inhibit uh, that. So I felt that there was something not right. So I followed that very closely. Initially, we thought that the disease outbreak would not be contained, would be contained in China and would not impact the U.S. But soon we realized that the gravity, the gravity of the situation. Uh, I remember, you know, getting a call on uh, right before the New Year when I was told that the whole city of Wuhan was quarantined ahead of Chinese New Year celebration to prevent the spread of uh, novel coronavirus. I have studied the pandemics and uh, viruses, and that's the time when I knew that something very serious was coming, and I really started uh, seriously working on building a task force uh, to fight uh, this imminent global pandemic which is upon us. So you were able to put together this ACT task force. It's, it's incredible what we're able to do often in times of crises. So how were you able to do this so quickly? And then could you tell us a little bit about the structure and the makeup of the task force? So ACT, it's, it's called ACT Task Force initially. So it's AAPM Coronavirus Task Force. So abbreviated as ACT, which is a, a great name because that is our philosophy. We want to, in this uh, you know phase of crisis, we want to act uh, as a community. Uh, so um, when we knew that the virus was hiding in infectious or was spreading very high and using humans as a host. And we also knew that human and nation-made borders uh, would not be able to contain these viruses because we travel today everywhere. So the world has become one big home. We knew that it is going to be very difficult to contain these viruses with the today's porous communities and borders. So then that's when I became to reach out, started to reach out to uh, you know folks in my uh, community, and I have been fortunate enough to be very well socially connected into the ecosystem of uh, international innovation ecosystem. Uh, uh, and I was I reached out to directly first well, people in my network, friends, colleagues, past coworkers, and we had a you know and I, we had a great response where people were just joining um, forces. We had so much response that we were able to form teams and assign different responsibility to different folks. So this is a, so this has been an amazing response and I thank you for everybody coming together and forming this amazing task force and contributing. The task force has people from all over the world, you know, US, Europe, China, India, Middle East, working together, finding preventive strategies, diagnostics and cure for corona, novel coronavirus. So the structure about the structure of the task force, what we have uh, divided the task force. Uh, we have uh, one big task force. So all members meet once a week, but we have divided the task force into seven different uh, sub teams based on the needs of the field. So. Of course, the first is focused on prevention and policy. It's right right now, as we really need that prevention is the the way actually. 
and also that the team also is focuses on how we can develop faster vaccines and other prevention techniques. We also have a second team that's focused on developing and uh, developing novel diagnostics. So this is a diagnostics team. There is also a therapeutics team focuses on how to develop novel therapeutics as well as how to repurpose existing uh, therapeutics. And we also have a, a supply chain team tackling all the supply chain problems that we are facing to get the drugs diagnostic to patients. Yeah, and we have the finally AI machine learning team that is basically uses AI machine learning deep learning to make sense of available data visualization and set course. It is a global task force with members almost in all time zones across the world working 24-7 since January 21. So we are yeah, very blessed to have amazing members. I think it is incredible what we can accomplish in a short time if we set our mind to it. Now, it seems like in the last couple of days, things have been reaching somewhat of a crescendo. The WHO has declared a global pandemic. We have cases all over the world. In the U.S., the NBA has canceled basketball games. March Madness is canceled. Schools are closing. I mean, we're at a virtual lockdown. I know you don't have a crystal ball, but, and of course, things can always get worse. Do you, th do you see things getting worse before they get better? So where are we? So right now, uh, it's a total 128,000 or 128,000 cases are confirmed throughout the world and about over 4,720 deaths that are reported with virus worldwide. China still leads with about uh, over 80,000 cases identified. Italy uh, uh, and Iran are the next in the list uh, and uh, followed by South Korea, France, Spain, Germany, and then U.S. U.S. is on the, on the list of top 10 countries and uh, cases are on rise in U.S. And uh, in case of, you know, what I would say is that in case of a pandemic, it is better to prepare for the worst case scenario to contain it and not not to let it spread. The viral pandemics usually, uh, you know, it is all. With that being said, I will also say the viral pandemics usually weaken in the month of April or May due to high heat. So one can anticipate that this will happen. However, this is a new virus and there are several unknowns. We really don't know many things to make that assumption. So let's be prepared for the worst case scenario and let's hope for the best. Is there any way to compare this to uh, previous outbreaks, you know, such as maybe the flu of 1918 or the H1N1 virus from about 10 years ago? Is our response reasonable and measured or is it somehow exaggerated because of factors like social media and just the interconnectivity of people across the planet? As the social media has become a primary mode of communication, we have, during the task force meeting, a lot of folks from internationally have brought this that social media has uh, also somehow helped as also you know created more panic and um, you know as compared to the previous outbreaks because they were we were not connected the only source was the television you know or the newspaper so social media has con you know contributed towards the making things better and worse actually so by spreading the, the scare so then then that causes uh, that has caused uh, anxiety and we all know that fear brings down the immune system of folks so one thing that we have to the task force has decided to put forward the right scientifically uh, validated articles to combat this fear and you're right i think the social media has has ex you know to a certain extent exaggerated it uh, as a previous pandemics, but you know, I still don't have opinion, is it better or worse yet? 
strategies to combat uh, the virus include the development of vaccines, uh, therapeutics, supportive care for people who are sick, and then logistical things such as quarantine, and then hygiene measures such as hand washing and so forth. Is there an order that we should focus on or do we need to attack all of these? So, you know, what I will say is prevention is better than cure. And in case of COVID-19, there is no treatment available and vaccines are still under development. So we have no choice but to prevention, social distancing, self-quarantine, quarantine, good hygiene. Uh, you know, these all has to be first priority. And, with the, and the second priority is diagnostic test to uh, determine um, who is infected and who is not. That should be the immediate uh, priority right now. And then followed by repurposing existing drugs uh, because that can be done fairly fast and, uh, could be the priority. Uh, and while developing new drugs, uh, um, which is a long-term solution, but we should do that uh, to fight uh, the next uh, pandemic. So let's talk about diagnostics. I alluded to before that in many ways, uh, infectious, disease, infectious disease has led the way in terms of developing DNA and RNA-based diagnostics. And we just saw that the uh, Roche-Cobas system, which is an RT-PCR-based system, was just awarded uh, fast-track approval for, by the FDA for the development of a new diagnostic for COVID-19. So where are we in terms of developing diagnostics and in terms of regulatory bodies? Have they been more of a help or a hindrance? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. And uh, yes, I think Roche, thank you for bringing it and, and bringing this up. And Roche was one of the first companies to, you know, give when the pandemic broke in China. When the pandemic broke in China, Roche was one of the first to offer its tests uh, to China, actually, and for which we all as a community applaud them and are so happy for the approval. So, you know, the so the diagnostics is very important because usually the you know NCO infected uh, patients are asymptomatic for a couple of days and still shedding the virus. So and and also you know there are also reports that one in hundred folks can be asymptomatic for 14 days before they develop the disease. So these are the folks who have very high immune system. They will not you know um, show the symptoms of the disease, but they could be still the carriers. So, so the accurate tests are very important to identify uh, uh, COVID-19 positive patients so that they can be treated, quarantined um, to avoid the spread of viruses. Uh, with that being said, you know, uh, uh, more labs are now working on developing, you know, more sensitive tests. There are certain problems and we all as a community are trying to work to solve that. And just to give you an example, on February 28, DA opened an emergency use authorization EUA process to um, create a new regulatory pathway for uh, regulated asset development. And uh, now both uh, you know, CDC and commercial labs are working to uh, develop tests. And uh, CDC reported on uh, last Tuesday that 78 public health labs are now running its test with the current capacity in the labs to test 75,000 people. And uh, FDA said on Friday that there are 200,000 kits available uh, from one commercial manufacturer 
while the other manufacturer noted that it has manufactured 625 kits and has capacity to make around 1,000 kits per week going forward. And each kit will support uh, 1,000 tests, so which is a uh, you know, big improvement. And FDA has said that these kits can be used both by public health labs and other highly complex labs, as well as diagnostics developers. So, you know, government is, you know, really working hard to deal with this. And I, I have spent my time um, at the government. I was seven years affiliated with the Department of Health and Human Services. And I have been uh, on that side to know, you know, you know, how dedicated these you know, folks are in what they do. It's very hard to strike a balance between protecting the public interest and also facilitating the development of much needed new products, particularly in a crisis. And it's certainly not time to squabble. But do you think we're going to be able to address this issue of having sufficient diagnostics available for testing worldwide? Yeah, that is a, definitely a challenge. So there are a few challenges. So one is the cost. How can everybody afford cost of the diagnostics test or visit to an ER, right? So I think we as a community and government, the question is to government, can we subsidize those tests or can we offer it for free for the mass testing in this pandemic? And government has a capacity to do that. So we as a community would request for that to happen so that so some of the people who cannot afford the, the, the diagnostic test or ER visits, they tend not to go to visit the hospitals and contain the disease to themselves, thereby not knowing that they are positive and they're also becoming, they're also spreading the disease uh, unknowingly. That And then creating that, uh, you know, that uh, platform where, you know, offering that uh, flexibility of being uh, tested uh, when, uh, you know, for free would, uh, would encourage more and more people to go and test this. And then that will, that will I think, make it possible to what you said, the testing all the uh, patient uh, worldwide. Generally, in our field, it takes months to even years to develop new products such as diagnostics and therapeutics. Now, how are we able to mobilize so quickly in such a short time span? I guess the obvious flippant answer is, well, just by doing it. But realistically, what are we able to accomplish in such a short time? Uh, we are learning every day. So drug discovery, and we all know that drug discovery development is an is a, a additional challenge for, you know, pandemics. So this is a novel virus, a new virus, and therefore we, uh, there were no drugs that were developed uh, as this was not a concern before. And that's why we are stuck with the drugs that we already have in hand. So, you know, at, at ACT, so, so the ACT of APMs, the Coronavirus Task Force, we are working not only to identify new drugs, but also working on repurposing existing antiviral, antimolar drugs and trying to see if we could do a quick clinical trial and push this to patients for drug development. Yeah, for the new drugs, you know, they have to go through the clinical trials, but they can be accelerated for regulatory approvals. What is a good news is that Gilead Sciences, who was developing a drug remdesivir for Ebola, and remdesivir actually uh, similar to SARS-CoV-2, targets Ebola's, you know, Ebola's uh, DNA, it's an RNA synthesis machinery. So Ebola, like uh, SARS-CoV, is also RNA virus. And as uh, remdesivir targets the viral RNA synthesis and viral replication, uh, this also has a broad spectrum activity in inhibiting uh, novel coronavirus replication. And in the clinical data, it looks promising. So I think this drug, if it gets approved, then we will have a, a drug that is out there. 
it's being fast-tracked uh, for regulatory clearance both in China and, and U.S. So, yeah, let's keep our fingers crossed. Now, many people may not appreciate that the whole drug category of antivirals is relatively new. We, you know, even back when I was a medical student, which hopefully wasn't too long ago, I mean, there really wasn't anything to treat a virus with. We saw developments, of course, with HIV and then uh, recently agents that could be effective against the flu and Ebola virus outbreaks. Uh, so what are their particular challenges in developing antiviral therapeutics? Is there concern about uh, the virus mutating in particular? Developing antiviral is the challenge, and then we are uh, working on uh, tackling that challenge. And, and as you mentioned, viruses have uh, innate ability to undergo evolution and mutate their genetic sequence when they are transmitted to uh, from one host to the other. Actually, this is a, this is a nature of viruses. They learn how to survive by by accumulating variations. So based on the differences in you know, genomic sequences, there are two types of SARS-CoV identified. More prevalent L-type thought to be uh, derived from older S-type. Uh, the older S-type is, uh, you know, was uh, thought to emerge uh, when the virus jumped from animals to humans, actually. So, uh, however, you know, WHO insists that uh, although there is some genetic diversity of the virus, it doesn't mean it's changing. Time will tell, but so you know, all so what WHO's stand is that although there are virus the sequences accumulating uh, variations, they are not uh, affecting the structure of the virus that you know, in a, in a bigger way. So, there's still you know, still there are areas where we could uh, you know, target to a response against the novel coronavirus. Yeah, President Obama's chief of staff, Rahm Emanuel, or perhaps he said it while he was mayor of the city of Chicago, he famously said, never let a crisis go wasted. So now what lessons can we take away from this crisis that will hopefully be, be over as soon as possible? What, what can we really learn about human nature and our ability to uh, mobilize and uh, develop new strategies? Thank you for quoting Raman Emanuel's uh, you know, quote, that never let a crisis go wasted, which is one of my favorite quotes and um, which was one of the driving force in uh, creating ACT to learn from uh, to learn from this uh, crisis and how to prevent it not to happen again. Uh, there are, so the world is at one table working on this and uh, you know, this has been a great learning experience for ACT members uh, on the task force to learn how countries are dealing with this outbreak. Some of the lessons that we have learned, and I would like to put it in, in a kind of a um, three major lessons, you know, just and give you a few examples. Uh, one is act earlier rather than later. This is one of the, you know, in case of pandemic, this is one of the best things to do. So what we have found is there is a positive correlation between the widely available faster test lab tests uh, with a death, death rate reduction. To explain that, you know, so for example, uh, you know, effective testing of the novel coronavirus has resulted in early detection and you know early clinical intervention. So the patients are can be treated earlier, which uh, reduces the mortality rate. So then act earlier rather than later. That's the first philosophy. The second, what we have learned is that overwhelmed health system can't treat all patients. This is one of the, uh, this is the lesson we learned from Wuhan and Hubei, uh, China's epicenter for this, uh, where this all began. Uh, so the example, so the, the critical factor for death rate reduction is the stress test for the healthcare system. The healthcare, the more the stress the healthcare system is, the mortality rate, the higher the mortality rate. Uh, so the, within the China's epicenter, the mortality rates first reported were approximately uh, two to three percent. Uh, 
whereas outside the, the epicenter within China itself, they have reported a much lower mortality rate uh, where there were not too many patients overwhelming the healthcare system. And the mortality rate was 0.7, which is a much bigger uh, reduction according to the WHO report. Uh, so as we scale the diagnostic effort in US and test more people, I believe that the reported death rates in US will go, go lower actually. Third is the communication, communication, communication. You know, that's the, in case of pandemic, you know, that's one of the, uh, and one of the best things one can do. And then we have learned that communication channels where, you know, somewhere, you know, I think the social media has a really fast track the communications, a lot of other areas that need to improve communications. And so what we have learned that experts need to communicate fast and can come to a conclusion fast because their life's at stake. So that's the, this is a le- lesson learned for the leadership. And for the scientific community, there has to be a pandemic scientific communication system that is not there. The journals are charging uh, and they're for a fee for every article. You know, the whole community is struggling. Preprints are rejecting and, you know, and bioarchives are rejecting the community papers. So there has to be a scientific communication system established to handle uh, a pandemic where the community has an access to all the papers, all the data, all the figures, all the tables that are put out there. That's we don't have it. Unfortunately, we don't have it yet. And we have to work on that. And and the people, offices and companies and schools, they need to know how you know infectious the virus is and what are the lives at the stake and what actions they have to take because they are all relying on the experts and governments to make that decision to let them know so that they can take, take the action so that they can overall contribute to prevent the spread of the disease. So these are all you know, lessons that are being learned. We are learning all these lessons you know, regularly so it's better to make mistakes for the first time, but it's worse if we repeat that mistake. So let's learn from it and not repeat the mistake. Valuable lesson indeed. Now, Dr. Mishra, thank you so much for taking time out of your uh, schedule during this global pandemic. How can folks learn more about the American Association for Precision Medicine and your ACT task force, and what can they do to help? So American Association of Precision Medicine, aapm.health is the website where you can get information. We have also the task force members have different communication channels that we have set up interacting with public. So every task force member has been a knowledge base for the community and we are curating scientifically back information and sharing with the community, you know, on social media. And that's one of our initiatives. We have also one of the members of the task force, Andrew Watson, he and his, his team has created a viral exploration group on, on Facebook, uh, which is a community that uh, has reached approximately 2000 members. And this is a platform, a great private platform of sharing information and asking questions by public and uh, experts answering their questions. So that's just an example. And we have we are planning to host a series of online meetings on COVID-19 crisis, and we welcome the community to become a part of it and, and learn from this. And we always welcome you know volunteers and uh, other folks who are interested in in contributing to the task force and also contributing to economically to donations uh, to the American Association of Precision Medicine. We always welcome uh, uh, and thank you and thank for your support. Our guest has been Dr. Prasoon Mishra from the American Association for Precision Medicine and the ACT Task Force. We'll see you next time on the Personalized Diagnostics Podcast.